Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. First, I'd like to start with an old tactic from the New Historicism. In one of his essays, the early modern French writer Montaigne discusses a time he followed a 16th century health craze. The health hack went something like this. Montaigne would raise a goat from infancy on a special diet that will lead the goat to perfect health. When the goat is grown, his cook staff would slaughter the goat. Then Montaigne would drink the adult goat's blood for improved health. But when Montaigne had his specially raised goat slaughtered, the cook found stones in his intestines. Montaigne studied the goat's intestines himself, hoping to understand how all this continuous effort, all this care and discipline in the raising of this goat over years and years, was just barely keeping in check the forces of internal decay and agitating disorder. Today, I'm excited to talk to Katie Kadu about a recently published book that examines how early modern writers leverage scenes of this kind of interminable, imperceptible labor. The book is Domestic Georgic Labors of Preservation from Rabelais to Milton, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. Katie is an incoming assistant professor at SUNY Binghamton and a former Harper Schmidt Fellow in the University of Chicago Society of Fellows. Katie's scholarly articles have appeared in Modern Philology, Montaigne Studies, and Studies in Philology, and Katie's public-facing work can be found at The Philosopher and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Welcome to the show, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Katie, you have an amazing Twitter account. I hear from a lot of people that academics are misusing Twitter, and I don't know exactly what that means, but you are definitely using it well. What is your take on academic Twitter? How does it fit into your academic persona? And what do you think academic Twitter could be doing better? Thank you for that question. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, in Plus One a couple of years ago about why I love Twitter, uh, which is actually related to what my book is about, which is that Twitter, I think, is a technology of suspension, the kinds of conversations and exchanges of memes and jokes that academics and also others have on Twitter. Reminds me of this part in Paradise Lost when the fallen angels fall into hell, they realize they're in hell, they can maybe get out, but they have to wait for Satan to come back because he's off in Eden trying to figure some stuff out and let them know what the future will look like for them. And in the meantime, they have to they have to pass the time. So they play games, they compose epic poetry, they debate philosophy, and Milton says they find no end in wandering mazes lost. So Twitter is just kind of like Milton's hell, I think, in that way of doing stupid stuff and having the same debates until the academic job crisis is resolved or the world ends. But it's also like Milton's paradise. It's like when Adam in Eden is is so entranced by the angel Raphael telling him about the universe, he doesn't even notice when Raphael stops speaking. 
he's just been stupefied, like scrolling through this endless font of celestial discourse. So it's that pleasurable pointlessness, the intertextual or intertwitteral self-referentiality, the possibilities for experimentation with literary form. Is a tweet like an aphorism? Is it like a lyric utterance? They find really fun and, and interesting. There's also a lot of bad stuff on, on Twitter, as anyone on Twitter knows. But when I'm when I'm wading through all that garbage, I also like to think of Milton, a different work of Milton that's also in my book, which is his tract, Aeropagitica, um, where he says that bad books, and I think by extension, bad ideas, bad takes, are like pharmacological ingredients. They're useful drugs and materials wherewith to temper and compose effective and strong medicines. So he's arguing that exposure to, to stupid or evil stuff can train you in transmuting that evil stupidity into something good, which I think is a kind of spiritual lesson that academics and others can can try to take in stride. Oh, that's excellent. That's, that's excellent. I think the fallen angels also, at some point, they start throwing rocks at each other, which also <laughs> seems symptomatic of Twitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, turning to domestic Georgic, what is the main argument of your book? So I was trying to, to figure out what it meant that some of the, the greatest authors of early modern France and England seem to be so weirdly obsessed with metaphors and descriptions of, of housework, cooking, cleaning, home organization, and especially food preservation. And this was a, a period in the 16th and 17th centuries when there was a lot of enthusiasm for work as a subject of poetry, but it usually was a more more manly kind of work, basically the, the work of building empire through agricultural, military, scientific innovation and expansion. The opposite of domestic labor, in other words. Real men worked outside the home and even outside national borders, and that's what real poetry should, should be about. A lot of the inspiration for this literary valorization of work came from Virgil's poem, The Georgics, from 29 BC, which is uh, kind of a didactic farming manual of a poem, though it's really bad farming advice that no one should really follow. Um, and it was often read in the Renaissance as a, as a panegyric for the civilizing power of labor, which can in turn lay the groundwork for empire and also the groundwork for Virgil's empire poem, The Aeneid. But the authors I focus on in my book, who are François Rabelais and Michel de Montaigne in France, Edmund Spencer, Andrew Marvell, and John Milton in England, they weren't interested or weren't only interested in the sweeping imperial designs of conventionally understood Georgic. The writing is full of references to the small, temporary, overlooked, often feminized forms of labor that happen within households and that are necessary to keep things going on a basic and immediate level. So I argue that this domestic Georgic offers us a way of thinking about early modern labor, including the intellectual labor of scholarship and writing literature as something a lot more fragile and small scale than we might like to think. And that extends as well to how we think about intellectual labor today in the university and beyond. Okay, that excellently leads into my next question, which is, uh, if I'm correct in thinking this, this began as a dissertation, right? Yeah. So, and I think a lot of our listeners are about to embark on composing a dissertation or turning a dissertation into a first book or advising someone 
who is dissertating. Could you talk to us about the process of revising this into a book manuscript? What advice would you give to dissertation writers or revisers or advisors? The, the hardest part of the dissertation book for me was confronting all the archaeological layers of, of my past selves that were buried in there, like frozen and congealed, suspended in there. They all get dug up as you're going through your dissertation, trying to revise it into a book. So there'll be a sentence from the first draft of your dissertation, then another sentence from your prospectus, and then somehow a sentence from a seminar paper that you wrote <laughs> 10 years ago got in there as well. And it can really feel overwhelming, all these past versions of yourself kind of getting up on you somehow. And I'm not sure you can really avoid that going in. It's just a natural product of, um, of, the, of the dissertation process. And the way I dealt with it is maybe not the best way, but I ended up keeping most of the material from my dissertation. I did swap out one chapter for another, but I ended up rewriting what felt like every sentence, trying to translate the idioms of my old ideas into this more coherent, modern living language that better represented where, where I was at the time. So trying to both preserve what's good about your past thought, you don't need to kill all your past selves, but smoothing out those jagged edges a bit and making it more coherent was a big intellectual and psychic challenge for me. And I just want to say one other thing about the book, which is that I wrote it um, in a contingent academic position, and it's a book in many ways about labor and contingency. And I was lucky to have a lot of material and intellectual support during the postdoc that I had at University of Chicago, which most people working off the tenure track don't have. But I still felt like I was testing out the, the book's argument in a way. Can I keep doing this small scale labor, in my case, of rewriting every single sentence in the book, even when I'm not sure I'll have a future in the profession? And it's kind of depressing in a way, but it also was sustaining. It gave me this guiding spiritual metaphor or exper experimental orientation that kept me going in both big and small ways. I can see uh, both of those themes now in your close readings of texts, you know, how Montaigne is revising himself. So um, what's really fascinating about what you said is it's like a kind of triangulated thing between your present self, your past selves, and these these literary texts that are all kind of moving um, on their own as well. Um, that's, yeah, it's like a really you know, awkward dinner party in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, I learned from your book that these early modern humanists had so much anxiety over their labor and how it was metaphorized. Um, so, so one of the really um, compelling things about your book is that there's a multifaceted um, look at the feminization of preservation and domestic labor. Um, each writer has, has a, I think, distinctive approach to, to the metaphorization of their labor. Um, you quote this interesting passage from a letter from Erasmus. First, uh, who was Erasmus? Erasmus was a Dutch scholar working around the turn of the 16th century. And he's really important for our sense of what Renaissance humanism was. He stands in for many people for the whole Renaissance humanistic project of recovering ancient learning and disseminating it all over Europe aided by this new technology of the printing press, of course. Uh, so he edited a lot of Greek and Latin texts and also wrote a lot about 
education, rhetoric, religion, war, virtue, marriage, all kinds of classic Renaissance topics. Uh, and his book, Decopia, uh, was a best-selling textbook used to teach rhetoric to schoolboys. And is also a, a relentless self-promoter, kind of a, a proto-celebrity academic. And Lisa Jardine has a great book about the lengths Erasmus went to, to to build his brand as the great, noble, selfless father of humanism that we think of today, which, of course, doesn't represent the reality of his of his working conditions. In this letter you quote, Erasmus has... Uh, he, he rehearses a thought experiment about a kind of zombie manuscript that keeps on being written after its author dies. Um, what did this thought experiment tell us about labor and humanism? And how did this differ from how Erasmus thought of his painstaking work elsewhere in his uh, writings? So that, that letter comes in the context of Erasmus's work, constantly editing uh, his great work, the adages like Montaigne and like many other humanists and contemporary humanists. Uh, and the adages is a kind of encyclopedia of ancient proverbs. So Erasmus was always adding proverbs and revising his annotations of them and reissuing versions of the adages every every few years for uh, 30 years. <laughs> so so in theory, you could buy one edition of the adages, and a few years later, there'd be a new edition, and you'd be like, damn, I wish I'd waited for that, for the new edition. I haven't read the old one yet. It's piled up with my other books in my, my bookcase. So in this letter, uh, Rasmus writes to his friend, John Botsheim. He seems to be poking fun at this kind of consumer, saying, okay, imagine I died after the first edition of the adages, and then he came back to life a few years later, and I brought with me a bigger and better version of the adages. You wouldn't be annoyed at having to buy a new edition because you'd be so overjoyed at my miraculous resurrection. And so you should be equally overjoyed at my miraculous survival. Like I'm still, I'm still here adding more stuff to the adages. It's just basically the same thing. And what he's really doing here in this weird thought experiment I think is is demystifying uh, precisely the mystical aura of genius that he himself created around humanist scholarship. It's really not a, a miracle that this massive reference work keeps getting revised and enlarged. It's a it's a product of hard work of an active struggle for both his own survival as a as a careerist scholar, but also the survival of the classical learning that he's preserving. And the entry in the adages that I focus on most in the book's introduction is on the trope of the labors of Hercules, which ends up being a really long entry in this book because he keeps interrupting his description of, of Hercules's mythical labors to tell the reader, but you know who the real Hercules is? Me. Because I've been sitting in this cramped room, going blind, squinting at these crumbling, worm-eaten pages. I can't breathe because of the dust. I'm knee-deep in this dunghill of manuscripts, and no one ever thanks me. So he really ends up sounding less like Hercules, who performed heroic feats, like cleaning the audience stables once and for all through his great strength and ingenuity, and more like a domestic laborer who feels like he or she is constantly having to clean up messes without getting any appreciation. He's just trying to keep ancient learning alive. And it's not really creative so much as preservative labor, but no actually creative or innovative work is possible if we don't have this carefully recovered, maintained, preserved store of collective knowledge for other people to draw on in the future. 
that's a wonderful close reading. Um, and I think really reflective of the work you do throughout the book. Um, in the first chapter, you take up um, Rabelais' metaphors of fermentation and tempering, what you describe as, quote, narration suspending microscopic operations of alteration that maintain that irrepressible flow of Rabelaisian excess that, that scholars have for a long time uh, identified with that writer. And you set his formal engagements, Rabelais' formal engagements, in the context of the soon-to-erupt French Civil Wars. Talk to us about pickling. Um, I'll always talk about pickling. So <laughs> Rabelais, as, as, you were, as you were mentioning, is often understood in, in terms of excess. He wrote these long books about giants with unruly bodies who go on rollicking adventures with lots of sexual and scatological humor and a lot of wine is flowing all the time as well. But I argue that he was just as interested in suspending or freezing or pickling that excess as he was in producing it. One of my favorite parts in Rabelais is when the narrator defines the ethical program of Pantagruelism, which is named after the book's protagonist, Pantagruel. And he defines it as uh, a certain deity of spirit pickled in contempt, confit au mépris, for fortuitous things. So something being, being pickled or confit is a metaphor for this virtuous habit of keeping yourself grounded, not getting carried away by excessive joy. And elsewhere in the book, too, pickling is is more literal. Like when we hear about this miracle plant called Pantagruelion, also named after Pantagruel, which works wonders as a medicine, as a textile, as a bunch of other random things that are apparently necessary to maintaining the very fabric of civilization. They can only do all of this stuff after it's been properly prepared. It needs to be marinated, dried, and processed until it's confit. Uh, so there, there's this, this sense of both metaphorical and literal pickling that are happening in Rabelais. And there's one last scene where uh, where pickling comes up that I'll mention, which is when Pendergruel and his merry crew are voyaging in the far North Sea. And they hear some weird noises that they realize are actually frozen words or frozen noises, which were yelled by some previous ship crews who'd come through the previous season. And they're now thawing out and making these weird noises. And the narrator wants to preserve, preserve these words in oil and straw, like you preserve snow. But Pantagruel says that that's ridiculous. There's no need to preserve words because words are always available. I think we're meant to think that Pantagruel is right, but also the narrator has, has a point. As much as Rabelais' books are about the irrepressible, irrepressible flow of, of words and of other kinds of materials, they're also about the temporary repression of that flow, about keeping words in reserve for us to use in future productions of knowledge and of literature. In the second chapter, you look at Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen. You look at these analogies of scale that from the household to the body, the kitchen to the stomach, the flow of laborious activity in a house to virtue in the subject. And you have a, a great close reading of of book one, where um, I, I think the hero stumbles upon the kitchen, right? And is just amazed at all of this activity um, that's mostly um, concealed or overlooked. Um, how did the overlooked menial labor required to keep the body from decay 
or the house from collapsing in on itself and form ideas of heroism and masculinity. Um, yeah, the, the House of Alma episode, uh, which is in book two, I think, is, is where these, these, two, these two knights named Arthur and Guyon end up in this, this random castle, as, as knights tend to do in the Fairy Queen. And the, the lady of the house, who's named Alma, shows them around. And the, the house, like most spaces in the Fairy Queen, turns out to be an allegory for the human body. And so the, the kitchen, as you were saying, corresponds to the stomach, the attic corresponds to the brain, and, and so on. And what, what struck me about this episode is that Spencer's poem is so much about what he calls the fashioning of a gentleman, the, the moral formation of the individual. And here we're being hit over the head with how many other people it actually takes to fashion a gentleman. Because Guyon and Arthur see in the kitchen all of these cooks who are really busy making food for the household. They go up to the brain and the secretary is running around trying to organize paperwork so that, so that the memory doesn't fall apart. And then the housewife, Alma, the, the soul of the house, is, is overseeing everything, which is a kind of managerial work. Um, so I'm not saying that Spencer thinks that domestic laborers are the real epic heroes, but I do think his poem exposes how much the epic action of those heroes depends on the everyday labor of housewives and servants and care workers who feed and clothe these heroes, who heal them when they're wounded. And also shown how, how hard and unceasing that work is. The cooks in the, in the stomach are sweating, the secretary in the brain is constantly running around trying to find the, the loose papers that memory has misplaced. Uh, there's a great book by Jonathan Goldberg called Endless Work, which is a phrase from the Fairy Queen. Um, the book's about the never-ending labors of interpretation that the poem imposes on us. Um, but I argue that endless work could apply just as well to the domestic labors that keep the poem's heroes going on their chivalric quest. So a more, a more material, less ineffable kind of endless labor, but one that's just as important to understanding how the poem works. And it, it's also not labor for the squeamish, right? That's something that that um, your book engages with too. It's it's um, bloody. There's um, viscera. There's there's other kinds of um, unsettling matter. Um, yeah, that's that, the problem with this kind of work. It's it's both really disgusting and yet boring and tedious. So it doesn't even have the the, the gravitas of, of that, that, that blood carries on the battlefield, for example, where it's also gross, but it's just you're just cleaning up blood in private and no one, no one's seeing you, no one's congratulating you. <laughs> this might be a good point to return to that, the paraphrase of the Montaigne essay that I started with, which um, you know, we talked about goat guts a little bit. Um, the, the, your third chapter takes up Montaigne and the mood of agitation Mood is different from feeling, um, and agitation is a, a very specific um, orientation or um, energy. How do you define the mood of agitation in Montaigne's essays, and what does this uh, goat in trails story um, have to do with irritation and agitation? Yeah, irritation and agitation are both, as you're saying, these. Maybe their moods, maybe their affects, but they don't quite rise to the level of, of real emotion or real feeling. There's something more like what C.N. Nye theorizes as ugly feelings, 
they barely register. They're kind of below the radar. They don't, they don't really seem political or, or meaningful. And Nye argues that these ugly feelings are a product of mature capitalism, but I think that they're also really present in the uncertain times of civil war, especially in the early modern period, where there wasn't really the same kind of certainty about how to feel about politics that we might imagine people had in the in the past. And Montaigne is maybe the the most irritated and, and irritating <laughs> figure that that I work on. I love reading him, but find reading him really irritating. And I, I take a kind of comfort in how irritating he found himself <laughs> as well. Uh, he was constantly revising, as I mentioned, like Erasmus. He worked on the, the essays for 20 years, during which time he added new chapters and new sections to chapters. But he also made a lot of teeny tiny tweaks in his sentences. He'd add a word or a phrase or a citation. And it looks pretty fussy. You can actually see this. If you look at any modern edition, you can see indications, either A, B, and C, or 1, 2, and 3, that will tell you if a little piece of the text is from the 1580 edition, or the 1588, or the 1592 edition. So it's also a bit like looking at your dissertation when you're trying to revise it into a book and thinking, wow, that that piece from seven years ago is a really, real artifact of, of seven years ago. And this, this fussiness, I think, is is both a, a form of irritation. He keeps poking around at the text and messing with it. So he's irritating the text, but he's also trying to assuage that irritation by, by smoothing it out or exfoliating it. And he also identified really strongly with this text, which is in many ways about himself. He says he was consubstantial with his essays, with this text. So he's even as he's irritating his writing, he's also irritating himself in a way. And I think it's also related to how Montaigne thought about domestic labor. So he was living in this chateau in Bordeaux, which required a lot of upkeep. And he complained about how annoying it was to supervise servants and keep track of the stables and the wine cellar. Much of this could be done by servants, but some stuff really should have, should be done by the, by the master of the house. But he also keeps talking about it, almost like he likes being annoyed by the tasks of estate management or was on some level struck by the similarities between rearranging household items and managing accounts on the one hand and rearranging words and managing prose on the other. And the other thing that really annoys Montan, I'm getting to the to the goat entrails, uh, is is his kidney stones, which he inherited from his father, and which are extremely painful, but only occur at random eccentric times. Um, so before he gets these kidney stones, he t- he had his cook raise this goat, and uh, in a special way, slaughter it in a special way, so you could drink the blood for some yeah, some dubious health reasons. And when the goat is slaughtered, the cook finds these strange round stones in the entrails. And years later, thinking back on this incident, Montaigne thinks about those stones as somehow related to his own kidney stones, even though there's obviously no causal relation, there's no genetic relation between Montaigne and a goat, but he still calls the stones the cuisine of, of his own stone with their distant cousins. As if that kind of connection, that that necessary connection would make these random stones and his random irritation he feels from his kidney stones meaningful. But they're just a dead end, actually. There's, the story ends very abruptly in the essay. And 
in the within the story of, of the goat, all those years of labor that went into caring for the goat ended up in these random stones. And that's also how Montaigne thought about his own essays, at his, at his more depressed moments, as a, a pile of random stuff that he carefully curated over years of his life, but that he also didn't imagine lasting much beyond that. And that's something that comes up throughout my book. This both, And it also came up during the writing of my book as I was talking about my own psychic state, the sense that it's, it's really important to carefully curate things over time and to care for literary and intellectual legacies that, that we that have been passed down to us and that we create ourselves. But no matter how hard we try to maintain that material, it sometimes doesn't work out. And that ultimate failure doesn't mean that it's not worth trying to do in the meantime, trying to keep things together in the in the meantime. Your fourth chapter is on Andrew Marvell's Upon Appleton House. Um, would you mind reading a passage from that chapter? Sure. First, I'll, I'll quickly contextualize it. It's This passage is analyzing a section in Upon Appleton House, which is a poem in praise of the, the country estate owned by Marvell's patron, Thomas Fairfax. And in the poem, the poet is kind of hallucinating and wandering around the grounds of the estate, which we learn earlier in the poem used to be the site of a convent. And we hear a bit about the very seductive and very industrious nuns who used to live there. So now at this point, we're out of the convent and into the fields where a familiar, familiarly feminine world interrupts the poet's fantasies by domesticating them. Like the nun, the wandering poet weaves prophecies from leaves. He then finds himself embroidered by oak leaves. Following the flooding of the fields, he observes the meadows fresher dyed like green silks, but newly washed, recasting as a new freshly laundered textile, the space previously described as quilted with mown hay. When he settles down to securely play, he adds to his inventory of household stuff by asking the woodbines to bind him in a silken bondage, an echo of the warm cotton embraces suggested by the nun. Though he describes himself as an easy philosopher, careless, and languishing with ease, the poet languishes like an aristocratic housewife, whose idleness could often not be easily distinguished from productivity, and whose production was not always clearly separated from consumption. For housewives, as for poets, proclaiming something easy that is actually tedious is not necessarily an attempt at artlessness. It could also indicate a genuine confusion as to whether these activities are really work. Needles and other sewing implements could be easily understood as idle utensils, as the poet's quills, his fishing gear, but also implicitly the tools of writing, his other form of unproductive recreation. What I really like about this passage is A, how artfully you weave in citations from the text and um, sort of tease out the meaning that's kind of um, bubbling up under, under the surface of the text um, and the kind of complex play between your ideas and the ideas of the text, the language, your language and the language of the text, um, which I think we're, we're going to talk about a little bit further. And also the, the play of agency in the passage, um, the, the poet 
weaves, um, asserts agency, but also finds himself embroidered. So there's a kind of interesting play there. Um, what, uh, how, how does a passage like this come together for you? What sorts of effects are you going for in this passage? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, it's gonna be hard to tell over over a podcast how many how many inline quotations from from Arbel's poem are embedded in there. But as you said, there there are a lot. And also, as you were saying, that kind of, of weaving of a text into prose is a big part of how I approach literary criticism. Um, Jonathan Kramnik has a great article and forthcoming book about how this practice of taking small pieces of text and incorporating them into our own textual bodies is in large part what literary criticism is. And Kramnik talks about this practice as, as craft work, which I think I felt, especially when writing about both actual practices of weaving and embroidery and about metaphors for writing as a kind of weaving or embroidery. So in a passage like this, I, I want readers to, to feel the effect of the weaving of Marvell's language with mine. And that kind of gets to your question about agency, I think, as well, that on the one hand, the literary critic acts on the text. On the other hand, the text is acting on the critic or on the critic's prose in a way. And I also think of it in terms of a kind of um, preservative work of suspending pieces of old text and the solution of, of new text like Rabelais' frozen words, or, or maybe more to the point, like, like candied fruit in syrup, where this technology of, of inline quotation both preserves the original material and makes something new. And also, again, as you were saying, blurs the line between the, the product and the, and the producer, these two elements of, of your prose and the original text working together in ways that you can't always identify. Yeah, in in our conversations before um, before recording, you had sent me the Kramnik um, article, and I I think it's called Criticism and Truth. It was published in a Critical Inquiry a couple of years ago, and um, yeah, I, I can really see um, how how Kramnik is kind of thinking about that play of of text, and also how it's really crucial for your your approach to writing. Um, in terms of writing process. And style, which academic writers do you admire and emulate? Um, do you participate in any writing groups? Um, what are your favorite and least favorite parts of the writing process? I most enjoy reading academic writers who take style really seriously, but also have a good sense of humor, which, which can be hard to find. Uh, so some examples are D.A. Miller, David Kernick, Christopher Ricks, and also my, my friend Ramsey Mc Ramsey McGlazer, who um, I always exchange writing with him, and he gives me the kind of, of ruthless edits that only a good friend can, can really give you. So having at least one person that you can always show your writing to and will be honest with you, I think is really important for getting through grad school and also getting through an academic career. I think my least favorite part of the writing process is uh, is starting. <laughs> I have a lot of that uh, blank page with blinking cursor anxiety. So I do this self-gaslighting hack that I read somewhere on Twitter. Someone posted this thing that some famous author does, which is you tell yourself that uh, you're just taking notes. You're not writing. You're just taking notes. And then when you finish taking notes, then you start revising. So there's no actual writing that has to happen. It's just this, this very gradual 
processing or fermenting pickling of notes into something that at the end of the day is is writing and you never actually have to write you can tell yourself that you're not and my, my favorite part of the writing process is is that that end state of revising which to be honest really is just writing but i call it revising so it feels less scary well, i like that a note-taking hack um, in, in that it's also kind of insightful in terms of writing is this continuous cycle of self-making where th- there's never really a beginning or an end to the, the writing, you know? Um, yeah, I, I like that. That's a great, um, great strategy. Um, the last chapter of the book surveys a range of uh, Milton's writings. You talk about... Um, minor acts of collective and individual management as a, quote, necessary but not sufficient precondition for any future transformative change on a larger scale, end quote, um, in referring to Milton's uh, thought. I especially liked your readings um, er- of Aeropagitica um, and Paradise Lost in that chapter. Can you walk us through a couple examples of... Um, Milton's thinking about uh, menial labor in his work. I talked a bit about Arabigitica in my in my Twitter answer, so maybe I'll just stick to an example from Paradise Lost, um, especially because this book really started with this moment in Paradise Lost when Adam and Eve are taking their lunch break from working in the garden, and Eve starts making a salad, when all of a sudden the angel Raphael appears on the horizon. And Adam hollers at Eve to pull out all the stops, harvest all the fruits in the garden, and make a really big salad to entertain their special heavenly guest. And Eve, and this part feels like a sitcom where the wife is like, okay, she gets kind of annoyed. She's like, Adam, that's not how things work. It doesn't make sense to harvest the whole garden because most fruits should ripen on the tree. Except there's actually some fruit that it does make sense to harvest unripe and store in the cupboard for a while because there it firmness gains to nourish. It becomes more nutritious if you leave it in storage for a little bit. I thought it was really weird that even in paradise where there's no scarcity, that there'd be some kind of food preservation, this this technique of using time to process raw produce. And that Eve would be familiar with this technique, even though she was almost literally born yesterday. So after this this lecture that Eve gives, she goes on to make the salad. And Milton describes her as very carefully choosing different ingredients from the different trees in the garden and mixing them together in precise ways and tempering some kind of creamy nut-based beverage or something. And it really sounds a lot like how Milton himself works, how he's tempering different classical and biblical sources throughout the poem, mixing together different images, words, phrases, and making his epic poem out of these disparate ingredients. And we can understand this poem in this way, not just as a narrative of human history and the whole cosmos, which of course it is, but also as the record of all these micro adjustments, this, this recipe the poet is following as he's both preserving a literary tradition and creating an entirely new and original work of art. There's um, something else about your reading of Paradise Lost that I'd I'd like to um, visit, which is you talk a bit about 
um, the understanding that Eve has that eating will lead to transcendence. Um, and so in some ways, um, she's led by um, a, a real belief, a belief that Raphael expresses to her. But um, yeah, maybe you can kind of expand on your interpretation of, of her choice to, to eat the fruit. Yeah, part of the problem with Raphael, who comes down and talks to Adam and Eve in this really pleasurable way, as I was talking about before in reference to Twitter, is that as he's explaining how the cosmos works to Adam and Eve, he gives them these metaphors of how matter starts like the roots of a tree, and then it goes to the trunk and the branches and the fruit and the flowers, and matter gets more and more sublimed the more it goes up the tree. And that's also how digestion works. You have this crude matter. And if you're an angel, you can digest that crude matter into something totally ethereal and, and air-like, but it's all part of the same matter. And then Raphael says, if, if you're good, if you behave, you too can become angels just by eating, just by eating like you do every day. Your bodies will become as refined as my angelic body. And that's just a crazy thing to say if your whole mission on earth is to convince Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit and not to, not to fall. So it's understandable why, why Eve would be confused. Why when Satan tempts her with the fruit and says, if you eat this, you will be like a God, why she might think, oh, huh, that sounds an awful lot like what Raphael was talking about. And her her only, her, her only mistake or crucial mistake is not thinking about time that Raphael is talking about a very gradual, by gradual scale sublimed. And Eve is being offered the chance to become a God, become angelic right away. And so not taking that, that slow process of that tempering requires into account, which she does take into account when she's making salad or when she's preserving fruit <laughs> in the garden, but doesn't occur to her at this, at this crucial, it's, it's hard to blame her though, because Adam is being so annoying and it'd be nice to, to get out of this marriage. Maybe you, you can kind of, you can kind of sympathize with her, but she does make this fatal mistake of not taking the temporality of temperance into account. Adam is very annoying. Um, and, and I find your, your reading um, absolutely compelling uh, in terms of temporality as being like the vector that her interpretation, where her interpretation breaks down, that gradualism, that imperceptible change that Raphael maybe um, is implicit in what he's saying, um, but that it is sort of fatally not explicit. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm on planet Milton right now, so I want to cover one more thing with um, Paradise Lost, which is um, I, I, I was really interested in your interpretation of the last couple books. Um, you, you quote C.S. Lewis, who called the, those prophetic visions an untransmuted lump of futurity, which is a great way to describe them. It's a sort of compressed um, version of sacred history from um, the uh, from the exile from Eden to the crucifixion. Um, you have, I think, a really fresh interpretation of those books. Um, can you share that with us? You, you could talk about um, the uh, preservation of potential. Yeah, I, I think one one question that I got in a talk that I gave based on this book was was about those last books where Adam says 
to Michael, the angel, who's very grimly predicting his future and the future of the human race. Um, oh, do I really have to leave Eden? Can't I make can't I make a museum? Can't I can't I build a monument to Eden so that you can, I can bring my kids here and we can remember the, the good times we had, even though we can't live here? And that's a mistake that that Adam makes because he misunderstands what what preservation is really supposed to be about. It's not about making these individual monuments that can be visited. It's about building up potential and futurity over time. And basically, it might be an untransmuted lump of futurity for now, but it, it might be transmuted in the in the future, but that you can't actually realize it as a monument. You have to hold it inside you as a potential vessel for a different kind of, of preservation. It's a different kind of preservation technology than the, the building of monuments. It's incremental. It takes place over time and it happens within the body in an almost metabolic way. Finally, I'd like to ask what's next on the horizon. Now that this is out in the world, what are you turning your attention to? Is there a class you're developing, a scholarly project, uh, a hobby outside of academia? I'm working on a new book project about what I'm calling commonplace misogyny in Renaissance lyric poetry. And I'm interested there in how these love poems by Petrarch, Pieter Hansard, Shakespeare, and some other male poets at once praise the women they're addressed to or about and denigrate them in subtle ways, kind of taking them down a notch, negging them in a way, as if these women were really annoying them. And this this seems to be about uh, about these male poets' relationship to women, but maybe more so about their relationship to love lyric, which is a kind of feminine and frivolous pursuit compared to epic poetry, for example. So in ways, this is very different from my my first book, but also like my first book. It's a project about male authors' simultaneous fascination with and contempt for women and feminized labor, though there's more contempt here. <laughs> um, it's also about how women, how, how men who are feeling overworked and unappreciated and exploited by a cruel, changing early modern world, sometimes blamed women instead of the more powerful forces or the other men who are actually responsible for how much life sucks. <laughs> so it's a way of, um, of, of thinking about how, how gender is negotiated through literary form and how work relates to gender in poetry. <laughs> Excellent. And I, I think an excerpt of that is out in Modern Philology. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I did get the chance to read it. And um, I think there's a really interesting discussion there about um, the, the negotiation between commonplace and cliche mm-hmm. and um, a real fascinating um, exploration of, of tropes. Um, we'll look yeah, forward I- to that book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say about commonplace and cliche that part of what interests about these poems is that they use a lot of commonplaces about women, like comparing women to rapidly fading flowers. And that was very common in all Renaissance literature to rely on what were called commonplaces that we would maybe today call cliche or would not think was very original. But I think there's a special quality to the cliches used to describe women 
they're even more tired and more worn out, more hackneyed than other kinds of commonplaces. So they start to veer into cliche in a way that anticipates our modern understanding of, of what a cliche is. That's excellent. We'll, um, we'll keep our eyes out for, for that project. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast, Katie. Thanks so much for having me.